hppodcraft.com. When Miss Emily Grierson died, our whole town went to her funeral. The men threw a sort of respectful affection for a fallen monument. The women, mostly out of curiosity to see the inside of her house, which no one save an old manservant, a combined gardener and cook, had seen in at least 10 years. It was a big, squarish frame house that had once been white, decorated with cupolas and spires and scrolled balconies in the heavily lightsome style of the 70s, set on what had once been our most select street. But garages and cotton gins had encroached and obliterated even the august names of that neighborhood. Only Miss Emily's house was left, lifting its stubborn and coquettish decay above the cotton wagons and the gasoline pumps, an eyesore among eyesores. And now Miss Emily had gone to join the representatives of those August names where they lay, in the Cedar Bemused Cemetery among the ranked and anonymous graves of Union and Confederate soldiers who fell at the Battle of Jefferson. Those were the opening paragraphs of A Rose for Emily by William Faulkner. This is a celebrated American short story that deals with themes of aging and tradition and roles in an ever-changing society, but it's also a horror story. One might say this is the basis for Robert Block's Psycho, even. Mm. And uh, that's why we're talking about it here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. Who is that amazing reader? <laughs> why, that was K.J. Middlebrooks. Ah. A fantastic actor, also a producer. I actually just saw Too Heavy for Your Pocket, a play that he produced about the civil rights movement. It had done well in Atlanta in New York and KJ, he produced its West Coast premiere at the Sacred Fools Theater here in LA. As always, I'm really glad to have KJ back on the show. This story arose for Emily. It's come up a lot as I've studied horror fiction <laughs> over the decades, um, enough that it felt like we should tackle it. We've been grabbing up some stories from Dashiell Hammett's 1931 anthology, Creeps by Night, and this mm -hmm. story is included in there. Lovecraft had actually read this story in that anthology, and he got into a debate via correspondence with August Derleth as to whether or not this was a weird tale. Hmm. I'm going to save that for the end of the show because it's got some spoilers in it. Faulkner is also a really well-known author, so we don't have to do a ton of bio, but let's do the uh, back of the book bio. Yeah, sure. So William Faulkner was born in 1897 in Oxford, Mississippi. He was from a fairly wealthy Southern family. He didn't fight in World War I as he was too short to get drafted, but he went up to Canada to help with the war effort, although he never actually made it from <laughs> Canada to the actual war. I'm sure that Faulkner would be pleased that his height was mentioned in his short biography. <laughs> Faulkner got degrees from Yale and the University of Mississippi. After school, he worked as a business manager for one of his father's many businesses, and he wrote his first book, Soldiers Pay, in 1925. His most famous book, of course, is The Sound and the Fury. It came out in 1929. It's about an aristocratic Southern family's loss of wealth and reputation. It takes place in Jefferson, Mississippi, which this story also does. Faulkner died in 1962 after a complication from falling off a horse, and he was only 64 years old. <laughs> that complication was thrombosis, which led to a heart attack, which would be a much more dignified thing for you to have said that he died of a heart attack. I mean, you didn't have to mention him falling off. The you like doing a hit job here. <laughs> Celebrated author William Faulkner was a short man who couldn't stay on a horse. <laughs> the end. 
Here, here's a, here's, it's true. I mean, those things are true. Here's some more conventional info. Faulkner wrote largely through the 20s and 30s, but was not really widely known until he received the 1949 Nobel Prize in Literature, for which he became the only Mississippi-born Nobel winner. Mm. So, you know, something like that might have been worth mentioning. Mm. Two of his works, uh, a fable. <laughs> yeah, but the horse thing. Two of his works, uh, a fable from 1954, and his last novel, The Reavers, from 1962, won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. In 1998, the Modern Library ranked his novel, The Sound and the Fury, sixth on its list of 100 best English language novels of the 20th century. Also on the list were As I Lay Dying and Light in August. So we got three on there, which is pretty good. This story arose for Emily was first published in the April 30th, 1930 issue of The Forum. Mm-hmm. This was this was Faulkner's first short story published in a national magazine. So big deal for him. It's been reprinted and he actually, I think, did some revisions of it over the decades. It's gotten more and more popular. As you mentioned, it takes place in Jefferson, Mississippi, which is a fictional town that Faulkner Mm -hmm. staged a lot of his stories in. All right, well, let's get into the story. The narrator is interesting because it isn't necessarily one person. It's almost Mm -hmm. the collective of the town is telling the story of Emily. We is often used, and it almost seems that at times we as the reader are roped into that we. The story begins with Emily Grierson death and her funeral. People have come to her house for her funeral, uh, the men to pay their respects, but the women are actually curious to see what the heck is inside the house. Yeah, that's a pretty basic curiosity to want to see the inside of people's houses, particularly Mm -hmm. if it's a neighbor or somebody from your town where you never really got that access. I know when my my father-in-law died, we were cleaning out the house in um, Alton, Illinois, or Godfrey, Illinois, where my wife's from. Some of the local kids in the neighborhood came to help move some things out of the basement. But I think the reason they were there is because they just wanted to get a glimpse inside this place. And, you know, also, I don't know if you feel this way, but like if I'm out walking at night, I love it when people have the curtains open and the lights on. Yeah. So that you can see in their house, even if it's just for a glimpse. Now, I feel like a creep even saying that. I don't linger, you know, (laughs) in the bushes or anything. But it's just getting that quick glimpse of what somebody else's life is like, how they laid it out. Yeah. You know, what are they doing of an evening? You know, that stuff is really interesting to me. I totally do that, too. If I'm walking by and the window's open, take a peek in and you can see what's on their walls. Usually it's a person walking from that. That's what will attract my attention is movement. Yes. And then I'll see somebody walking from one part of the room to another part of the room and I'll look and glance and you just get that snapshot. Oh, there's a kid doing their homework. Uh, that guy's cooking. Yeah, it's, it's you get that quick little yeah. slice of life. And I guess it's because, you know, deep, deep down, we all wonder how we stack up to everybody else in terms of our normalcy. That's actually packed into this story yeah. quite a bit too, right? Where are we? And you, you don't get it from just the people you know because that's your bubble, you know? So little glimpses like that give you an idea of what the rest of the world is living like. And how you stack up, I guess, is what the instinct is. Anyway, I, I understand what these women are into. Yeah, it always seems to me that people's other people's houses are nicer than mine as well. Well, yeah, I thought it was... <laughs> how do they have time? It's so stylish and neat and put together, yeah. Depending on where you are. Certainly that happens in Los Angeles yeah. all the time. Whereas where you grew up, sometimes, you know, the toilet was actually on the front yard already. So <laughs> you, could, uh, you didn't even have to look in the windows. Granted, the plumbing wasn't hooked up to it. <laughs> Emily is one of the last of the older generation of Southerners. The prestige of her family was fading, but people still wanted to pay their respects. For example, many years back, the mayor, Colonel Sartoris, he was also of the old generation, could see that she was on hard times and told her that she didn't have to pay local taxes because her father had lent the city money and it was their way of paying her back. This is totally not 
true, but he said this to her because she was too proud to take any kind of charity. It seemed to be plausible enough for her to believe. And Sartorius was actually the name of a novel that Faulkner had written around this time as well. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that name Sartorius is based on, you know, sartorial meaning like pertaining to clothes. Mm -hmm. Could be. So that he kind of relates to a a more proper, well-dressed generation or something along those lines. I also know that his grandfather was called the Colonel. His family sort of elevated him. There's all these stories about his grandfather, the Colonel, and how Mm -hmm. he was almost deified by the family. So I think he might have also been basing this character a little off of his grandfather. The author's grandfather. Okay, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. Well, it's hard to know if, if Emily really believed this lie about the taxes or not, that her father had helped out so much for she didn't owe taxes for the rest of her life. We don't really get any glimpses of Emily's psychology at all throughout the story. No. Which is part of its efficacy. I feel like she might just be clinging to the lie as well. It's like, as long as there's yeah. a story, I can accept this charity, but there's, there better be a story. Yeah. Even if she knows it's a story. And this setting and this circumstance of the kind of fading older generation is really at the core of what we've come to know as Southern Gothic. That gets thrown around a lot, but here we're really seeing the origins of it. Yeah. Let me hit you with some basics of that genre. Pulling this right out of Wikipedia, but it did manage to okay. explicate it pretty well. Southern Gothic is a subgenre of Gothic fiction in American literature that takes place in the American South. Common themes are uh, deeply flawed, disturbing, or eccentric characters who may be involved in hoodoo, ambivalent gender roles, decayed or derelict settings, grotesque situations, and other sinister events relating to or stemming from poverty, alienation, crime, or violence. Elements of a gothic treatment of the South were apparent in the 19th century ante and postbellum in the grotesques of Henry Clay Lewis and the de-idealized visions of Mark Twain. Mm. The genre came together, however, only in the 20th century when dark romanticism, southern humor, and the new literary naturalism merged into a new and powerful form of social critique. The thematic material was largely a result of the culture existing in the South following the collapse of the Confederacy. It left a vacuum in both values and religion that became filled with poverty, due to defeat in the Civil War and Reconstruction, racism, excessive violence, and hundreds of different denominations resulting from the theological divide that separated the country over the issue of slavery. Mm-hmm. The term Southern Gothic was originally used as pejorative and dismissive. Ellen Glasgow used the term in this way when she referred to the writings of Erskine Caldwell and William Faulkner. She included the authors in what she called the Southern Gothic School in 1935, stating that their work was filled with aimless violence and fantastic nightmares. Sounds like She's just advertising to me. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> it was it was so negatively viewed at first that Eudora Welty said, they better not call me that. So this was mm-hmm. not a nice thing to say about somebody's work at the time, but um, I think it's become a genre that folks are pretty fond of. Oh, yeah. But you can see how this genre might even appeal to a dyed-in-the-wool Yankee like Lovecraft, especially these aspects of a lost fortune mm-hmm. m- moving down in status over time. And then, of course, the gothic stuff, the decaying buildings and the, uh, the screwed up people that live within them. Yeah, it totally fits. With Emily, after about 20 years of not paying taxes, the old guard had died off and new people took over those jobs and they realized that she wasn't paying taxes. <laughs> so they sent her letters and said, hey, you owe us some money for taxes. And she just ignored those letters. And after a while, they got a group of aldermen together to go speak to her in person. Nobody in town had been to her house uh, since she stopped teaching China painting, which was about 10 years earlier. Her old black servant, this guy, Toby, opened the door and let them in. This is the same manservant mentioned in that intro we heard. So the house was dusty and musty, and it smelled just old. They rose when she entered, a small, fat woman in black with a thin gold chain descending to her waist and vanishing into her belt, leaning on an ebony cane with a tarnished gold head. Her skeleton was small and spare. Perhaps that was why what would have been merely plumpness in another was obesity in her. 
She looked bloated, like a body long submerged in motionless water, and of that pallid hue. Her eyes, lost in the fatty ridges of her face, looked like two small pieces of coal pressed into a lump of dough as they moved from one face to another, while the visitors stayed at their errand. Now, she didn't ask them to sit. She just lets them state their case. She then said that, I don't have to pay taxes. It's all sorted out. I have no taxes in Jefferson. Go ask Colonel Satorius. They all kind of go, uh, well, he's been dead for 10 years. Yeah. We can't really ask him, and, and you owe this money. And she goes, I don't pay taxes in Jefferson. So this, basically, her force of will stymies them, mm-hmm. and they just kind of shrug and end up getting ushered out of the house, and they don't know what to do and then that's it they give up yeah there's a little bartleby the scrivener there yeah the way that he says you know i prefer not to just says the same thing over and over she just says i have no taxes in jefferson (laughs) no matter what they say that's how she responds to them so eventually okay we gotta go and then also the fact that she might think that colonel sartorius is still running things is she just trapped in time is she nuts yeah she presents the kind of front that is going to make you throw up your hands and just walk away so moving into the second part of the story, we hear another tale of Emily's force of will. It was 30 years earlier, two years after her father died, and she was expecting to be married. This story is nonlinear. I never read this when I was in high school or college, but I did hear that some students kind of got headaches from the story, and I didn't see why at first, because I think the writing is really clear, but I think the nonlinear structure might give some high schoolers some problems, maybe, mm. in terms of the order of things happening. We started with her death, got a little information about her when she was older and heavy, refusing to pay those taxes. But now we're flashing back to 30 years prior to that incident. You, you said she was expected to be married soon, but actually we know that she's been left. So she was expected to be married, but that has ended. It says yes. that was two years after her father's death and a short time after her sweetheart, the one we believed would marry her, had deserted her. Yeah. So that's important. At that time, her house had a terrible smell, and it was driving the neighbors crazy. They thought the house was just dirty since she only had her servant, Toby, to clean, and he was a man, and, you know, men don't know anything about keeping a kitchen. Yeah. Some of the women had come to check on her uh, over the this time, but she wouldn't see anybody in this period. After her father's death, she went out very little. After her sweetheart went away, people hardly saw her at all. The local authority, Judge Stevens, thought that maybe there was a dead animal about and it just needed to be cleaned up. But Emily, she just wouldn't listen, wouldn't take anybody's advice. So the aldermen got together and said, we have to do something about this. But the judge says, look, are you going to tell this respectable lady that she stinks? They come up with a more sneaky solution, right? Instead of facing her, they decide they're going to be sneaky. They get some dudes to go to her house, creep over to her cellar, bust in, and then sprinkle it with lime. Yeah, lime. Lime everywhere, not just the cellar. They sneak around, they get along the baseboards of the house, all the outbuildings. Said they slunk about the house like burglars. It's a really odd scene, too, because it says, As they recrossed the lawn, a window that had been dark was lighted, and Miss Emily sat in it, the light behind her, and her upright torso motionless as that of an idol. She's presented lots of times as being in the house. Even though you can see her, you still have no access to whether she's even looking at you or not. After a few weeks, the smell finally goes away. After that, the town began to pity her. Now, at this point, she was in her early 30s and should have been married off long ago, but her father never thought any of her suitors were good enough for Emily. Also, she had a great aunt that's mentioned, old lady Wyatt, who had gone crazy. And mm-hmm. they think, oh, maybe that's happening. Maybe that goes in the family and it's happening to Emily as well. Right. There's there's this descriptive bit about the father. It says, we had long thought of them as a tableau. Miss Emily, a slender figure in white in the background. Her father, a spraddled silhouette in the foreground. His back to her and clutching a horsewhip the two of them framed by the back-flung front door. That image really expresses the dominance of the father and her role in the family. And we never get to find out if she was okay with that or not. 
Yeah, after he died, people came to the house to console her, but she wasn't in mourning. She insisted that her father was still alive, and everyone tried to persuade her that, well, he, he he's dead, but she just was not having it. Finally, on the third day, folks were going to basically bust in to get that body out of the house, mm. but she finally agrees and lets them take her father's body away. Yeah. Even though she did this, people, we, it says in the story, we didn't think she was crazy. They just believed that this was part of her grieving process. The verb is important, though. They say we did not say she was crazy then. Ah, uh, yes. We believed she had to do that. So I think they think that she's crazy. Oh. They're just not going to say it out loud. You See, know? I misread that. Yeah, well, this is the, a culture where you think all sorts of things about people, but what you say is the more important thing. Right. What's presented on the exterior is more important. So it said, we remembered all the young men her father had driven away, and we knew that with nothing left, she would have to cling to that which had robbed her, as people will. So they understand why she would cling to the past, but I think they're still getting a crazy vibe. From her. Sure. Also, that idea that we still don't know if she was cool with how her father was handling the situation or not. Did she only cling to him because that's all she had left? Mm-hmm. I mean, once once dad's gone, what is her meaning anymore since he's yeah. been such a dominant force in her life? Now into chapter three. So after her father's death, she was sick for a time. She cut her hair short and it made her look very young. There was some work being done on the streets by some Yankee construction company. The guy that was in charge of it was this guy, Homer Barron. He was a big, handsome man who was uh, the life of the party. People just totally love him. He was great with jokes. Everybody wanted to be around him. Miss Emily and he started spending a lot of time together. Now, all the ladies in the town were tizzy about this. She couldn't marry some Yankee day laborer guy. She was probably just desperate in her grief for some kind of attention. But a lady in her standing should not forget her heritage. They're so sad for her because she's clinging to this old life, but they still apply the standards of her old life to her. Yeah. Of course, she's not going to marry this Yankee. Her father never would have approved of him, A, because he's from the North, and B, he works for a living, (laughs) which is horrible for somebody of her stature. Uh, She had no family, really, back then. Her father had a falling out with the rest of her family, and she hadn't spoke to them because he hadn't spoke to them. They had some kin in Alabama, apparently, but they didn't even show up for his funeral. So for whatever whatever the argument was, it was pretty bad. Uh, She carried her head high enough, even when we believed that she was fallen. So she kept her pride about her as much as she could. She had that aristocracy, the blue blood that gave her some pride, whether it was earned or not. There was an incident at a corner shop where she wanted to buy some rat poison, arsenic, and the man who owned the shop insisted that she explain what she needed it for. But her force of will just made this guy sell it to her without any explanation. Really without any explanation, because you're, you're saying rat poison. She did not ask for rat poison. She just says, I want some poison. <laughs> He's like, yes. what do you want? You want it for some rats or something? She goes, I want the best you have. I don't care what kind. So if he'd have given her elephant poison, she would have been cool with that, too. You know. Sure. And then it sounds like she just likes the name arsenic. When the druggist insists that she say what it's for. He actually says, I can't sell it to you unless you tell me what it's for. Mm -hmm. She just won't do it. When he gives it to her, it's written for rats on the poison. So he did that for her. Yeah. That's her imperious force of will at work. So now in chapter four, people at the time hoped that she would have used the rat poison to end her own suffering. Which which implies that it got out right away that she went and she bought this poison. Oh, yeah. This is a town that this we is a collective group of gossips, basically. So they all know that she bought this poison. So everyone thought she was going to marry Homer Barron, but he said he liked men and it was known that he drank with younger men in the Elks Club, that he was not a marrying man. Mm. Now, is this just a guy who doesn't like to settle down or... I know it's crazy, but is this about homosexuality? Mm. Because I know at the time, a lot of gay men 
just kind of you know hidden plain sight like they would be you know like i like to hang out with my buddies all the time i don't really you know women eh, you know these are just my buds that we hang out and do man things with each other look the sentence could have been this homer himself had remarked that he was not a marrying man and that's the important part i know i'm not into marriage i'm not gonna do that but the the sentence is split up strangely homer himself had remarked dash he liked men and it was known that he drank with the younger men that he was not a marrying man so it's it's inserted in there as if to give you some reasoning behind him not being a marrying man. Yeah. He could say, I'm not a marrying man. I like to play the field. Yeah, but he doesn't say that. That's not what he's saying. No. It's that he, he likes men and he wants to hang out and drink with the younger men, which could just be like, I want to pal around with my buddies. I don't want to get into a serious thing where I have to take care of somebody as well. Right. But I think there is enough coded in that sentence that were you. Look, there's a lot of analysis on this story about whether Homer was gay or not. Sure. Yeah. I think that you've got a couple of motives there for perhaps her poisoning him, which are they just he's not a marrying man, but also possibly that there's some other relationship there that she disapproves of. So I don't think it's crazy to suggest that at all. So the minister's wife took it upon herself to reconcile Miss Emily with her estranged family. And after much writing back and forth, she was able to persuade two of her cousins to agree to come live with Miss Emily. Just basically come check in on her. But yeah, I don't, I don't think they're excited about moving into the, uh, the leather, the leather dusty parlor. (laughs) (laughs) So the town heard that things are going well with Homer now and that Miss Emily bought a man's toilet set in silver. Mm. Uh, She also bought a man's nightshirt. So the town thought that she must have been married to Homer. Homer leaves town because the job's done and it was assumed that he was going to come back after he sorted out business. So her cousins ended up leaving town. Right. Well, the streets had been finished off for some time and he was still around. It says we were a little disappointed that there was not a public blowing off. But we believed that he had gone on to prepare for Miss Emily's coming or to give her a chance to get rid of the cousins. Sure enough, after another week, they had departed. So there, there's probably more to it than just the job being over. They think either he's going to call for because if he's if she's going to marry this laborer, mm-hmm. it's likely that she'll leave town. Right. Or uh, if he is going to come live with her, she's got to get rid of the rest of the family because they are not going to approve of that. Right, right. Now, Homer is seen back in town three days later at Miss Emily's house. But that is the last time anyone ever saw Homer again. Seems that she was finally jilted. And for six months, she was never seen in the streets. Only her servant, Toby, was seen in town and he wouldn't say a thing. She was only seen in the window once in a while, as she was when they sprinkled the lime, which if you'll remember was right around this time. So the next time anyone saw her, uh, she put on a ton of weight and her hair started to gray. It started to gray, but it froze up at a certain point. Up to the day of her death at 74, it was still that vigorous iron gray like the hair of an active man. So it's got a little salt and pepper mm-hmm. to it, which is that's in, her hair color is important for later. When she was about 40, she started teaching kids how to paint China. Now, the kids didn't really seem into it. It just seemed to be something that they were expected to do, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like going to church. Right. You know, they weren't really into it, but it's just what you do. As a kid, you go and you learn to paint China. But those kids, as they got older, no newer kids showed up because they hated it. And why put your kids through it if you didn't like doing it? So <laughs> eventually the doors closed again. I like this. When the town got free postal delivery, Miss Emily alone refused to let them fasten the metal numbers above her door and attach a mailbox to it. She would not listen to them. I like this idea that she even refused to have an address in the modern world. <laughs> and, and it's something you don't even think about. When the post came in, all of a sudden, everybody had to have a number on their house. Yeah. Prior to that, you would have said, oh, it's that greenhouse around the block. Go down here. That just blows my mind a little yeah. bit. <laughs> but the fact that she is that resistant to entering the modern world, I think, speaks volumes. So people never saw much of her after that. Just Toby. And of course, he didn't talk. And then when she was about 74... She finally died. In one of the downstairs rooms, in a heavy walnut bed with a curtain, her gray head propped on a pillow yellow and moldy with age and lack of sunlight. 
So now this is the last chapter. Toby, he lets everybody into the house after she has died. And after he does so, he just kind of slips out the back door and is never seen again. That guy probably had an amazing playlist all queued up for what he, you know, what he would listen to when he could finally walk out the door and <laughs> never turn around and come back, you know. I am free. He is free of this crappy job. Could not imagine. So her cousins, they came back for the funeral and they saw to the details of the funeral. There was a a door to a room that was locked and it seemed like it had been locked a long time and they were going to have to bust it open. But they decided they would do that after the funeral and all the proceedings. Yeah. There was this part here I really loved where they talk about the funeral. It says the very old men, some in their brushed Confederate uniforms, talked of Miss Emily as if she had been a contemporary of theirs. Believing that they had danced with her and courted her, perhaps, confusing time with its mathematical progression as the old do, to whom all of the past is not a diminishing road, but instead a huge meadow, which no winter ever quite touches, divided from them now by the narrow bottleneck of the most recent decade of years. Ah, <laughs> oh, it's such beautiful writing because it's yeah. so true. You know, you can enumerate the last 10 years probably in a more mathematical fashion, but past that, it's just the past. Yeah. It's a giant area where all sorts of things get jumbled up and happen together. And these old men don't even realize they're not of her generation. She would have been a lot younger, but in their minds, maybe they danced there or something. I just really thought that was great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but they waited until Miss Emily was decently in the ground before they opened up that room upstairs. They head up there, bust open the door. This scene reminded me a bit of when they bust open the door and the color out of space, you know, to find those ashen remains all right, yeah. of the wife up there. They break the door open and find a bedroom covered in dust and decorated as if for for some kind of long forgotten wedding. There's a tie and a collar sitting on the table and a suit hanging folded on a chair. Underneath the chair was a pair of men's shoes. The man himself lay in the bed. For a long while, we just stood there looking down at the profound and fleshless grin. The body had apparently once lain in the attitude of an embrace, but now the long sleep that outlasts love that conquers even the grimace of love had cuckolded him. What was left of him, rotted beneath what was left of the nightshirt, had become inextricable from the bed which he lay, and upon him and upon the pillow beside him lay that even coating of the patient and biting dust. Then we noticed that in the second pillow was the indentation of a head. One of us lifted something from it, and leaning forward that faint and invisible dust dry and acrid in the nostrils, we saw a long strand of iron-gray hair. That's the end of the story. That is the end of the story. The chamber, it reminds me, is uh, of Miss Haversham from uh, Great Expectations. Jilted at her wedding day, and so she never leaves the wedding dress. You know, the cake is uh, all rotted on the table, Mm -hmm. just constantly living in that moment, except Faulkner says, I'm going to take it one step further and have the groom in the bed. (laughs) (laughs) And obviously, if folks haven't read this before, you can see why this would be a a basis for a a psycho. Yeah. It's a a gender switched kind of version of of the story. Yeah. She obviously killed Homer and she Mm -hmm. canoodled with his corpse. Right. There's a lot of inference that this might be kind of a necrophiliac kind of thing. Yeah. I don't get that impression that she actually had sex with the corpse. How would we know, you know? But yeah, she just yeah. clung to it and and stayed with it. And you wonder if it was, did she really love him, but either because he didn't care much for her, because he's more of a party guy, mm-hmm. or was gay. Mm-hmm. She killed him and then tried to pretend that everything had gone on as normal, and that never happened. It's a really... <laughs> 
it's really kind of scary when you think about what went down here. Oh, yeah. Well, and obviously it seemed to be when you look back when her father died, there was a bit of that same thing going on as well. But people knew that his dead body was in there and they mm. weren't going to let her keep it. But that seemed to be something that she was pretty keen on. Yeah, she seems to be deranged. I mean, even from the beginning, because she also kind of ignored the fact that her father had died. Like she said, oh, he's not dead. Yeah. He's he's okay. And I kind of wondered if there wasn't maybe a possible implication of some kind of incestual relationship with her and her father as well, because her father kept away suitors from her. Yeah. And to me, that sounded like maybe that was somebody trying to keep somebody under strong control. Right. Nobody's good enough for his little girl. And that is that is unhealthy. I wonder if she had a vision of her own life that was in line with what her father's was and had a hard time letting go of it. Or if she was under his thumb and had wanted something different like this man on the bed. Right. She had wanted something like a person who was a worker or that maybe that's what she was interested in. When her father was finally gone, she could get it. But then when the man refused her, she couldn't even have the thing that she had secretly wanted and she was determined to get it one way or another. Yeah, but we don't know what went on in her head. We're only able to judge her by the actions that she had taken. It's, again, this we, this town, speculating on what's going on with her and why she did the things that she did and what, what her motivations are. And and we are also speculating just like the town is because we don't really know. Yes, and I think the title, A Rose for Emily, suggests that the author pities her mm-hmm. and gives her this, you know, here's a rose for Emily. It's too bad that she had to live through a life like this. Yeah. I, I don't think we're supposed to come out of this thinking, thank God, you know, she didn't murder somebody else. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no. this is really just a sad story about a person who, because of societal structure, et cetera, didn't get what she wanted. Yeah. And uh, became something of a ghost while alive. Yeah. The way that she's described as almost like a bloated corpse near the end. She's already dead in a way. Now, yeah. is this a weird tale? This is the discussion that Derleth and uh, Lovecraft were having. I'm getting this from S.T. Joshi's book, The Modern Weird Tale. He has an excerpt from this correspondence. Mm -hmm. And it says, one of Lovecraft's comments is significant. reads, I'm far from denying the Faulkner yarn a high place as a realistic story. It is a fine piece of work, but it is not weird. Mm -hmm. This sort of gruesomeness does not suggest anything beyond ordinary physical life and commonplace nature. Necrophilia is horrible enough, but only physically so, like other repellent abnormalities. It excites loathing, but does not call up anything beyond nature. Mm -hmm. We are horrified at Emily as at a cannibal. Or is that some practitioner of nameless sabbat rites? But we do not feel the stark glimpse or monstrous doubt hinting at subversions of basic natural law. Yeah. You know, remember, this is Lovecraft's very strict adherence to what he believes weird to be. It has yeah. to be an inversion of nature of some kind. Yeah. Joshi goes on to write, I believe this contains a few fallacies that may at least force us to qualify it a bit. It is true enough that the horrible and the gruesome do not by themselves constitute weirdness. It is also true that necrophilia is horrible, but it is not merely physically so. The power of Faulkner's tale rests on her perception of the astonishing aberration of Emily's psyche that led her to kill her lover, keep the corpse in her bedroom, and lie next to it for decades until her own death. But Lovecraft's bias towards external cosmic horror and his general lack of interest in human beings appears <laughs> to have caused him to underrate the degree to which the mysteries of the mind could be nearly as powerful and bizarre as the mysteries of the universe. Hmm. So yes, there's no subversion of basic natural laws, but there's so much mystery going on in terms of what her mental state was, why these things were executed on, uh, how she endured decades of sleeping with this corpse. It does almost seem outside of human nature to do something like this. But in Lovecraft's defense, it is well within human nature for this to happen. 
I know, you know, you're saying it almost seems that way, but it's it's not. There's many people do many more horrible things than this, and things that are more depraved and violent and terrible. No, it's true. So it, it's not a weird story. It's interesting and it's creepy, and you do wonder about those types of people that are plentiful out in the world and why they do the things that they do. But in Lovecraft's mind, the weird is that touch of the unreal. And unfortunately, there is nothing unreal about this story. No. I'm sure there are, and I didn't get, and I didn't go down the rabbit hole on this one, but I'm sure there are lots of accounts oh, of people God. keeping their dead relatives around for, or yeah. dead spouses around for very long periods of time. I know I've even read them in the past, you know, where yeah. they'll find somebody who's been living with a dead person for a long time. So, yeah, we know this happens. Uh, I think it has more to do with emotional connections than aberrant sexual behavior for the most part oh yeah although that exists certainly as well i think that maybe you would relate this kind of thing to lovecraft's work and to study the weird in general because more of the technique of it we see effects but motivations are inscrutable yeah if you want to present the more narrow version of what lovecraft thinks weird fiction should be you can use that technique to do it mm. and so i think these are of a piece in that respect but uh, but lovecraft of course makes a good argument and he's the he's the one who knows right he kind of created this genre or at yeah. least uh, articulated it yeah but it's still a great story it's very short so i recommend everybody digging it up and giving it a read it's really well done it leaves you with a real sense of sadness of aging and of things changing and all of us no matter what society or culture we live in have to experience levels of change and some things we're willing to adapt to and some things we're not willing to. Yeah. I don't know. When I read this, it immediately leads me to start thinking about my own life and what things I've lost touch with or what things that I don't want to participate in or what things seem strange to me mm-hmm. or how often am I written off as somebody saying, I look, I'm not that old, but I'm just saying that, <laughs> that like people do begin well, as you, as you get, uh, well now come on as, as, uh, <laughs> as you get older and older though, people do start to go, well, that's his generation or, you know, that's what they used to do. I, I also, I just want to clarify something. I said in an earlier episode that I was 40. And what I meant to say was I was in my 40s because I am 45 years old and I will be 46 in May. Mm. I'm not under any kind of delusion that I'm younger than <laughs> I am. Did somebody say that you were? Nobody was. I heard myself you're, say I was... You're worried that somebody's going to think that about you. So you're, you're just as obsessed with the cultural convention as anybody. I am, but my obsession is in the truth. And in reality, and I'm willing to change yes. to accept new truths. <laughs> well, there you go. I, now, this story, you're right. This story is very sad. But one thing that I am not sad about is our patrons. No, I'm not sad about them at all. In fact, I want to thank a few of them right now for being part of the team. And I am going to start with thanking Simon Tanner. I want to thank Pam Winkler. I want to thank Explosion the Aquarius. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Got that right. I would like to thank Jennifer Wong. Tom Bueller, thank you so much. Hey, James Duffy, thank you so much. Joseph A. Rogers, thank you. Timothy Owen, you rock. Matthew Ephraim Duncan, thanks so much. And Brett Daniel, thank you for your support. We love you guys, and we hope to have you back next week. Also want to thank our reader, KJ Middlebrooks, for uh, knocking it out of the park as usual. He's so good and so talented and such a wonderful warm human being. I love that guy. I agree with all of that. And that's all we have for this week. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com.